praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us and for all that you've given us. We thank you for the uh, men and women of this church, Lord, that seemingly rise to every occasion, that everything that comes our way, Lord, that we just we meet that challenge and, and meet it, Lord, uh, with a greater overwhelming force than, than the challenge itself. And I thank you for the men and women and that have worked so diligently on the building over there and given up so much of time from their family and, and their own jobs. And, Lord, uh, you're the only one that can reward them, but it speaks so well of this church. And, Lord, uh, I, I thank you for this church. I thank you for, uh, Lord, what it stands for, how that, Lord, that you've given us a haven, Father of truth. And, Lord, we ask you now, Lord, to just bless us today. We'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and, the, and, and all that you do for us and the praise. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in chapter 5, we begin to look at the great New Testament doctrines. If you remember, recapping just briefly, we saw in chapter 1 through chapter 4, we saw how that God was dealing with uh, and laying out and setting up the foundation for uh, understanding the great concept of getting God's righteousness. We shocked in chapter 1 how that the, <coughs> the Gentiles are in a terrible state. And the Gentiles were a group of people that followed their conscience in the Old Testament. They didn't have an Old Testament law that was written down like, like the New Testament or like the Jews did. They followed the law of their conscience. And we found out in Romans chapter 1 that that won't work any longer. You can't solely rely on your conscience now for what you're going to get from God and what God has for you. You have to build a personal relationship. Then we saw in chapter 2, we saw in chapter 2 how that the Jews who had the law, and they thought they were better than the Gentiles because the Gentiles had no written law, the Jews did. And we went through all of this. And remember that the Jews had a superiority mindset, that they thought they were better than the Gentiles because they had the oracles of God that was given to them by God, and therefore they had become puffed up and, and thought they were better. We saw in chapter 2 <coughs> where God told them that they weren't any better. Then we got into chapter 3 and 4. <coughs> And in chapter 3 and 4, he began to show us why that now that Christ has come and died on the cross, <clears throat> that God's dealing with man will not be solely through their conscience anymore. And just in the same token, it won't be solely through the law, the Ten Commandments anymore. But now that Christ has come and Christ has died on the cross, now that God has changed the game plan, so to speak, and now we're in the New Testament, and God now freely, and this is why we studied David's life and Abraham's life. Those two men are really what the great doctrines of the book of Romans are built around. And the great doctrine of Romans, first and foremost, is you and I, the moment we got saved, we got God's righteousness imputed to us. And because of that, we have now, uh, we have now salvation based on nothing that we did or nothing that we could do to merit it. And this is the foundation from which the book of Romans is going to build on. From this point on, we're going to see major New Testament doctrines that really help you and me understand why what we have, what we have as New Testament Christians. Now, there's a number of things in this passage today, and I want to try to get through them in the time that we have today. But first of all, look at verse 1. I never want to miss these kind of things. Look at verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. This is one of these, this is one of the must-have verses in the Bible. There are certain verses in the Bible that you just have to have memorized, and this is one of them. 
This is one that is absolutely an incredible verse. And uh, when you're dealing with somebody about salvation or you're in your own personal life, that is one of the greatest verses you'll ever commit to memory. And I try to point those out to you as we go through. Now look at the first word, <clears throat> therefore. I remember one of the greatest things anybody ever taught me about the Bible. And this seemed like a, an easy thing to get, but, you know, I wasn't the brightest light bulb in the box when, when I was younger, still out now. But, <clears throat> but I remember, <clears throat> I remember I, you tell me all the time that what you want to get in the Bible when you begin to read it is a context. And the sentence structure or the grammar of the Bible itself is, is what helps you do that. And many times we read the Bible, and let's face it, most of us were not, probably did not get a great grade in, in English or English grammar structure or English literature. Uh, and so I know personally I didn't, and I had to go back when I got into the Bible and kind of re-educate myself and buy those, kind of felt kind of stupid at 29 years of age going back in and buying fifth grade grammar books, but uh, you know. But I did it, and I, I learned and taught myself the structure that I didn't get, because it's vitally important. And I remember years ago, when I was at a Bible study, Mel Sabaka, my, my father in the Lord, he was teaching, and he, he stopped. In fact, it was this verse, and he took the word, therefore. And he just stopped, and he said, now look, anytime you find that word in an opening verse, or in the Bible, you're trying to find the context. The word, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The word therefore means basically because of what I just told you. And what you have here in chapter 5 where he says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying there is, based on what I just gave you in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. See? He's getting ready to add something to that. And you always want to watch those places in the Bible. Because uh, you got to watch how you read it. Because therefore means he just finished saying something, and now therefore is a connection between what he just said and what he's getting ready to say. And many times that's how you, you get the context. And yet, verse 1 probably states the greatest news that man ever heard. It sums up, in, and this is why you need to memorize it, it sums up in one verse what we saw typified in the first four chapters of, of uh, studying Abraham's life and David's life. It, it talks about and sums up the fact that the moment you and I trusted Christ, you and I were declared, declared by God to be righteous before God. And not only did He just give you His righteousness, but then He gave you a book that makes a binding legal agreement. That's why I told you when we get into the study of the book of Romans, it's almost like a legal document. It's written in a in, a, in almost a legal format. And that's why some people have a tough time grasping the book of Romans. But in reality, he, when, he give you, when He gave you and me His righteousness, He imputed it to us. Then He wrote us a book that makes a binding legal declaration that our sins have been completely washed away and paid for by the blood of Christ. That's why when I started to study the book of Romans, I told you that the book of Romans is basically the... the, the, uh, the uh, the Constitution of Christianity. <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> our founding fathers wrote a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution of the United States. And in those two documents, they laid down the framework for our government, which back then was a republic. They laid down the framework, and you need to find out what the difference between a republic and a democracy. They laid down the framework of, of what our country was going to be based on the Word of God. And of course, the book of Romans does the same thing. It sets up the framework for what you and I have 
and what you and I are, are, should understand as far as our own salvation uh, in Christ. Now, <clears throat> obviously, you should already know this by what we've come through the book of Romans. Before we were saved, we were at war with God. The Bible calls it enmity. Enmity is defined in James chapter 4, verse 4 as enemy. In fact, our word enemy comes from the word enmity. In truth, we were God's enemy. <clears throat> now, the fact that God's Spirit still reaches out and makes overtures to you and I, even though we're still lost, is only because of what Christ did on the cross, and God loves the sinner through the death of His Son. But as far as fellowship is concerned, as far as God hearing your prayers or God showing you something in the Bible, He limits Himself to showing you only things that bring you to Him to be saved. And in reality, through the blood of Christ and Christ's death on the cross for Christ's sake, in reality, we were God's enemy. We are, we are an ad adversary toward God. But the moment you and I trusted Christ, God imputes His righteousness to us, and now we have ceased being God's enemy, and we are now His child. And this is why the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, as far as an unsaved person is concerned, it says, Ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your fathers ye will do. You were murdered from the beginning and brought on the truth, because there's no truth in you. You're a liar and a father of them. And it shows us that before I was saved, before you were saved, we were at enmity against God, and we were God's enemy. But when Christ died on the cross... He made it possible for God to reach out through His Spirit and, and give me the opportunity to come into Christ. And when I did that, at that point, God imputed His righteousness to me and washed away my sins. And that's what the Bible's all about. Now, when it says that, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Now, we've got to look at this. A lot of things in here. A lot of things in here. In your Bible, there's two types of peace. Now, you need to know the difference between these. There's the peace of God, and there's the peace with God. Now, in Romans chapter 5, it's peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, peace with God in the context will always be a reference to salvation. When you got saved, what you did was, is you made peace with God. See? You're no longer God's enemy. Now, the second time of peace in the Bible is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. That's the peace of God. And when it says over there, it says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And uh, that, remember, remember we laid that verse out? Look at that, Christ Jesus. Remember a couple of Thursday nights ago, I told you the difference when you found Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, how it set the context? What does it say there? You get the peace of God through Christ Jesus. Christ was the name of deity. Jesus was the earthly man. Remember I showed you a couple of Thursday nights ago at Bible study how that when you find that title, it always shows you and denotes you the context. That context there puts the deity man first and the human man second. You know what that shows you? It shows you the context is Christ coming from heaven and becoming a man. When you find that Jesus Christ, the context will be being the son of man, going up to the deified, glorified Christ. The context there is simply this. You got God's righteousness and have the peace of God now because He left there and became a man and died on the cross. Now that's how you put your Bible together verse by verse. Peace with God will always be a reference to salvation wherever you find it. The peace of God will be the peace that you have once you get saved in your daily walk and your relationship with God. And understanding this, 
is the basis for the great doctrine of eternal security. If I could just get God's people to understand the difference between the peace of God and peace with God, there would be never a question of anybody thinking you could lose your salvation. And it's just that simple. Most of the things in life that we struggle with have very easy answers to. Last week we talked about, last week we talked about, or last couple of weeks we've talked about God's will for your life, God's plan for your life, God's work for your life, and that when you get those three things lined up, you have the vision of God and what He wants you to do. Not your own vision, not some hocus-pocus vision like the charismatic crowd, but a vision of what now, why you exist. What God has saved you for, what He left you down here for, and what He wants you to accomplish in your life for Him. Most people never, never, never get that Never get that in their lives. Living in, a, living in the supernatural versus the natural. We talked about, you know, getting the, getting the God's vision and getting God's victory. Abraham becoming God's friend. And getting the vision of God really what, what's important in your life. Becoming that living sacrifice like we talked about last week. Getting the proper perspective on the world system. You know, the world, in, I think really the reason why most of God's people don't really do what God wants them to do outside of their own flesh? I mean, let's look around. I mean, you look around in the world today. There's a lot of impending forces out there that really get scary. And I think many times people get so focused on what's going on in the world that they don't get to the focus of what God wants them to do in this life. You've got to kind of ignore that. It's always been there. But you see, when you understand the peace with God versus the peace of God, then you, have a, you get God's perspective. You know, you don't, you're not afraid of the things that you should not be afraid of, and you are afraid of the things that you should be afraid of. And I think it puts it in proper perspective. I meet Christians all the time today that are paranoid because of the world that we live in. They actually think that the world we live in today, with all of its impending disaster and dangers out there, is, is, is worse than it had ever been. You know around the turn of the century... Uh, Haley's Comet comes through about every 86 years or something like that, and it came back in the, I think it was the 70s, and it, around the turn of the century, it came back, uh, it came back a, 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 one of its, you know, one of, one of its orbits. And, you know, people are very superstitious. And every time a comet comes by, because comets are goofy, they, they, they're way out there beyond the Oort cloud, you know, in the, in the outer supreme parts of the universe that are distant out there. They're not even the greatest telescope. Not even the Hubble can see it. And they're out there, and some of them have cycles of millions of years. Some of them have cycles. They have long-term and short-term comets. Some of them cycle through every two or three years. Some every, every year. Some of them, every, like Cayley's Comet, every 70 or 80 years. And then some of them, you know, like Hale-Bopp when it came through and uh, Kohotek when it came through. 10,000 years before it'll be back. But, but every time a comet shows up, you know, human nature has not changed. Back in the uh, ancient times, you know, with the Babylonians and all those crowds, when a comet came through, they thought it was an omen. Some, some cultures thought it was a good omen. Some thought it was a bad omen. In both cases, they helped up their sacrifice, sacrifices of people, you know, and because of the fact that, uh, you know, they wanted to please the gods, you know, and, and, and they killed a lot of people because of it, because they were superstitious. But human nature hasn't changed. When around 1800, uh, when they, or the beginning of 1900, right on the turn of the century, when uh, Cayley's Comet came through again, Thomas Edison was a saved man. He's the guy that created a light bulb. And he was a saved man. 
And somebody came to him and said, you know, you know what they're saying in the New York Times, you know, comet may spell the end of the world, you know, man knows it and all this stuff. Somebody came to Thomas Edison, who was a saved man, and he said, you know what they're saying out there? They're saying that, that this comet could be the end of the world. And, and Thomas Edison looked at him and said, that's okay, we can do without it. We don't need it. See, he had the right perspective. I was someplace a couple of weeks ago, and this thing in Iran, you know, with uh, getting the nuclear bombs, you know, and if they get that, you know, here's what's going to happen. They get the bomb, and Israel goes in and stops them getting the bomb, then Russia comes down and allies with Iran, and then it goes from there, and then we have to ally with somebody else, and pretty soon, you know what you got? You got World War III, Armageddon, all in one little box. Somebody says, well, them blankety-blank Iranians, they're going to get the A-bomb, they're going to blow us to hell. I said, correction going to blow me to heaven. I don't know where it's going to blow you. It's going to blow me to heaven. It's all in your perspective, you see. Right now as we speak, Brian and I were talking about this last night. Right now as we speak, you know over in Europe, you know what they're doing right now? You know what they're doing right now? They got a great big machine that is 17 miles in diameter. Can you imagine a machine 17 miles in diameter? And that thing is called the atom cruncher or crasher. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to, they, they get this thing up and running. They turned it on last week and everybody was happy because the little lights come on. And, they, and in time, what they want to do, they want to recreate. They say that in time when they, when they bombard these proteins and protons or whatever they are, atoms and all this stuff, and, and they bombard them to the place that it'll create the same time period in a smaller diameter at, right before it was when the Big Bang took place. You know what the Big Bang is. Big Bang is when your wife backed out of the thing and hit the, hit the neighbor's car. No, it's when the universe started, you know. Now, everybody's worried about that because they're saying, well, what if you, and because they're talking about creating a very small black hole. And the thing is, what if you, what, and everybody's saying, well, what if you, what if you create a, a black hole? And if you don't know what a black hole is, a black hole is something that sucks in everything in, light and everything, you know, and it, that's why it's called a black hole, because of the fact there's no light because it sucks all the light in. And they're saying, well, what happens if you create this thing? And this would make a great horror movie, I think. I mean, I could just see the whole planet Earth being sucked down in France someplace, you know, and just open that thing up. And, and, and I, told, I told Brian last night, and I was talking about some other way. I said, you know what? I think it's only times at a, signs at a time. I am not, I am not worried about, because I know the Bible, see? And when you know the Bible, you don't have to worry about all this stuff that most people worry about, because you know how it's going to end. I'm not worried about somebody in France ripping a time warp in the, in, in the, in the, in the fabric of, of eternity and having everybody sucked in. But I am kind of interested of them doing that and building it and ripping a little time warp in that thing and seeing what comes out. Now, you do know Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 9, don't you? That something in the tribulation period comes out of that supernatural into the natural, like they did in Genesis 6. Oh, you got to watch what's going on. But you know what? When you have the peace with God, when you're saved, when you have peace with God and you get saved, it automatically in time, if you grow, gives you the peace, gives you the peace of God. And when you have the peace of God because you made peace with God, your attitude about all this stuff is, let her rip. Let it go, man. I can't think of anything better than the whole world going up in smoke and being right in the middle of it and get to watch the first-hand seat. It'd be like being in a fireworks display and being right in the middle of it. I think it's great. But most people worry about that. Why? Because they don't understand that when you made peace, when you got the peace of God in your life, when you, made, when you got that because you made peace with God, when you have that in your life, 
then you don't have to worry about what takes place in life. Now look at verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now that is, that is an incredible verse. Now, you know, we read those verses in the Bible and many times because we don't read it with a right mind's eye or don't have, a, have enough uh, maybe spiritual insight into it, it just looks like verse. Let me tell you something. These five verses are some of the greatest material you're going to ever get in your life. Notice it says, wherein we stand. Now, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about here out of this one. And uh, the first concept is wherein we stand. You know why most people don't stand for anything? God's people, because they don't stand in anything. If you're not standing in something, you can't stand for something. And what we are standing for today is the Word of God in it. He says, he says wherein we stand. Now that brings up one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible that we've talked about before. But there's a lot of new people here, so let me briefly just lay it out for you. And it is the difference between standing and state. When you got saved, going back to getting God's righteousness, when you got God's righteousness imputed in you, your standing in Christ is fixed. And what Paul's talking about here is the fact that what he's getting ready to say, that we can glorify God and glory ourselves in God in everything we do because we have the assurance of the peace with God and the peace of God and I am sure today because I am saved and I have this book that gives me the peace that God wants me to have that I know where I'm standing in today. Nothing makes me afraid. Nothing should defeat us. Nothing should get us to the place where we get our focus off. You know, it's like a football game. How many times have you, have you watched a, a, a beautiful play and the guy, the quarterback gets the ball snapped, he drops back, you know, out of the pocket and some tight end is running out there, running a perfect route and uh, he's, all, he's at the end zone, man. He's only two steps away and the guy lets the ball go and he, he, he's ready to catch that ball and then suddenly he loses his focus. Why? Because he hears some 475-pound linebacker feet banging the ground, and he knows he's going to get hit. And just for a split second, just for a microsecond, he takes his eye off the ball he's supposed to catch because he's worried that he's going to get clobbered. And you know what? He misses the ball, and he still gets clobbered. Now, a very good one, in my mind, and I'm not much of a football guy, but I remember, I remember that in my mind, the greatest ball catcher I ever saw was Lynn Swan. I made him pay for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I watched him make some incredible plays and, uh, years ago, and this was back in the 70s. He was a great ball player. And I don't care how hard you hit him. I don't care if you had 20 guys coming down on him. He never got his eye off the ball, and he always made the play. I watched him one time when he was running, and it's a classic. It's a classic. It still show it in all the classic films. I saw it. Not on person, but on, I watched the game on TV when he did it. He's running out there, and somebody throws him the ball, and he comes up to that thing, and he's kind of leaning out, and he gets one hand on the ball, and he's falling over, and guys are hitting him. He tips the ball up, and just as he falls, he reaches out and pulls that ball in and gets clobbered and hits the ground. Incredible. You know why? Focus. He never lost his focus. You know why we don't do what we're supposed to do for God? Honestly. We lose our focus. We hear the footsteps coming up behind us. God snapped the ball to you when you got saved. You're running his route. 
He wants you to catch the ball and make a touchdown up in heaven. And you know what? Some of you will drop the ball because of the ominous footsteps that you hear coming up behind you of this old world. When you have the peace of God and the peace with God, you don't lose your focus. And you can accomplish whatever God wants you to accomplish because of the fact you're confident wherein you stand. My standing in Jesus Christ is sinless perfection this morning. When God sees me, He sees me perfect. That's my standing. Now my state is something else. Where the standing deals with your soul and your eternity and your eternal relationship with God because He imputed His righteousness to you. That's your standing. Your state is your everyday relationship with Him that comes and goes based on your focus, you see. Now, all of you are saved here this morning if you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior. If you're saved, if there was a time in your life when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, then your standing in this morning is in Christ Jesus, and that's the end of it. But your state could be something else. You can be saved here this morning and be standing in sinless perfection as far as your state, your soul is concerned, but your, your walk with God could be something different. That's your state, you see. And that's the great doctrine of standing in state. And what Paul's saying in here, he says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace, and then he puts it there, wherein we stand. And that's a good question for every child of God. Where you stand this morning. Where you're at. Whose side have you taken up? Now, I know that you're, if you're saved this morning, your standing is in Christ. But the bottom line is, where's your state? How do you translate standing into your everyday life? And of course, this is the great doctrine that Romans begins to lay out. Look at, look at verse 2 again. It says there, note the word rejoice. See, look at that thing, rejoice. It says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we do stand and rejoice. See that thing? You ever notice that, that the word that the Christians use is the word rejoice, the word the world uses is happiness? You know the difference between the word rejoice and the word rehab in happiness? Happiness is the word that comes from the happenings in life. So when happy, something happens to you good, you're happy. When something happens to you bad, you're unhappy. See, that's the world standard. A Christian never is to be happy unless it's happy in the fact that he's rejoicing. You see, rejoicing is something that goes on whether it's good or it's bad as far as the world is concerned. And we are to rejoice, rejoice uh, in the fact that the hope of the glory of God. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Wow. Now that just seems like a nice verse. That thing is loaded. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me explain that for you from a Bible standpoint. Let me take the word hope. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody read a passage like that and they say, well, I thought as Christians that we didn't have to hope. I thought it was sure. You know, well, why does he use the word hope? Well, the word hope in the Bible doesn't always mean I hope I'm saved. If you're drowning out there and you fell off a ship, well, you guys are going on your cruise here. You better be careful of that, you know. If you fell off the ship, Crystal, if you fell off the boat, you already fell off the wagon, but this gets you back on the boat. If you fell off the boat and Kristen comes out and sees you in the wake down there, and she throw, and you can't swim, and she throws you a big old life thing, one of those big old lifesavers. Now, you're in the water, and she just threw you something. 
It isn't the fact that you're saying to yourself, I hope this life thing will save me. You're saying to yourself, that life ring is my only hope, you see. That's it. You're going to drown without it. It isn't, I hope it will save me. You know it will save you. You're saying, it's my only hope. If I don't grasp that thing, if I don't have that, I'm going to drown. Well, it isn't the fact that you hope you're saved. It's the fact that because you are saved, Jesus Christ is our only hope. There is nothing else. And then, hope in what? Hope through tomorrow? Yes. Hope through the bad times in life? Yes. Hope through disappointment and heartache? Yes. What, what, the hope in what? The hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know what the glory of God is in the Bible, wherever you find it? It's Christ coming back. And it isn't just the rapture. You see, when it talks about the glory of God for you and me, it covers the whole bottle of wax. It's not just a rapture, because once he comes back, the glory of God never leaves again. So it's everything from the rapture on out into eternity, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You know what it's saying? He's saying that when you know where you stand, and you know what your hope is, not just I hope I'm saved, but your hope is the fact that you're in Christ, and Christ has got an incredible plan going out through eternity, and you see everything that's out there, and you're, you're standing in it so you know what it is. You rejoice in the fact that no matter what i got to go through today, no matter what i got to put up with in my life, no matter what happens, how it looks bad, how it turns out, I'm rejoicing in the fact that it's only temporary, and brother, when I get come, when he comes back, it's going to be one great day. Now that's what Romans chapter 8, verse 18 is all about. And that chapter in Romans 8, when we get there, we're going to have a great time with that. It deals with the, it deals with the doctrine of the two adoptions for you and for me. One physical and one spiritual. You know what he says in Romans 8, 18? He says, for I reckon, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. You know what he's saying? He's saying whatever we got to go through down here in life, when you are standing in Christ and understand the peace of God and the peace with God and understand the hope of the glory of Christ and rejoicing in it, not much in this life is going to ruin your day. Like Thomas Edison. Well, we can get along without the world. Blow it up. Like me. Well, this, these Iranians are going to blow us to hell. Correction, going to blow me to heaven. Let's get it going. I don't care. I got no plans past this next second. And the proper, it, it, it gives you the proper perspective of the child of God. And without that proper perspective, you'll never fulfill God's will in your life. Never fulfill the plan, never get the work, and you'll never grasp the vision. Because every time the great quarterback of the universe snaps the ball and fades back and throws that pass, and you're running through life, and you got the old gospel shirt on with a number 7-7 on it, and you reach up to catch that ball in the millennium and get your judgment seat of Christ's reward, suddenly you hear the big footsteps of the big old demonic linebackers who are going to crush you into the ground, and you get your focus off the ball, and you get your focus on that and you miss the catch some of you like football and I don't like it too but I'll tell you what it doesn't even match the big game of life doesn't match the game of life that we all have to go through and the hits are just as hard trust me this is why when a child of God understands the book of Song of Solomon and he sees his relationship with Christ and how he should view Christ and Christ actually see how Christ views him. 
why when he understands the book of Ephesians, that is that intimate book where Paul lays out the church, he understands John when he wrote in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, the last prayer in your Bible. The last prayer in your Bible was, even so come Lord Jesus. Why? Because he was rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. I'll tell you this. Not only are we to rejoice in the glory of the hope of the glory of God, look at verse 3. Not only are we not only to glorify and rejoice in His coming, but it says also in tribulations. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes, right down where we live. Now we're going to talk about not only having glory in the fun things or the deep things of the Bible. See, it's fun on Thursday night, isn't it? Yes, it's fun on Thursday night when you ask the question about uh, something in the millennium or something in eternity or something about there in the future, the rapture, the tribulation period, the Antichrist, you know, and all those things. And we lay all that stuff out and it's all that wow stuff, you see. Oh, and we can, it's easy, it's easy to, to get a Christian to look toward the things that haven't happened yet that nobody's went through yet, that are just in the Bible, that are the neat things of the Bible. Hey, that's not hard to get somebody to rejoice in that. You know what's tough to rejoice in? The bad things you're going through right now from your perspective. Now, I hope this helps you. This is a great verse. This is the verse that's got me through more things than I can even mention to you. Not only are we to look the glory and rejoice in His coming, but also in our tribulation. Now, i got to clarify this, because you know what? When you get into these situations, you got to always clarify yourself. Now, let me talk to you. We have tribulation in our lives for two reasons. Now, hear me on this. I don't want you to get messed up on this. We have tribulation in our lives for only two reasons. The first one is the law of sowing and reaping, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. That simply means that you screwed up in life and you made some really bad choices and now you're paying the tab for it. The second one is found over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and that's the call, I call it the law of godliness. All you that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. See? There's two avenues to this. For all my life, all my ministry, I've seen people who have absolutely done some of the stupidest things in their life. They're dysfunctional. They have no, they, they make bad choices. You know, they get themselves way over their heads financially. And, they, they, and, and, I, and I hear all the same story. I had a couple tell me one time that was, you know, years ago, they, they were just, uh, just bad choices, stupid stuff, buying stuff they didn't need. And just, you know, had to have it, you know. Big house when they couldn't afford it, this and that when they couldn't afford it. And then they're upside down. And his, he come, they come in and they said, you know what? He said, I said, well, how can I help you? And he said, you know what I need? He said, I need a million dollars. You know what I said back to him? Why? So you can make some million dollar mistakes? There are some people it wouldn't matter how much money you give them. Because money's not, lack of money is not the problem. Right now, maybe you only have, you, you have $100,000. So you know what? You have $100,000 debt. You get a million dollars, you get a million dollars debt. You get $10 million, you get $10 million debt. The problem is not more money. The problem is more common sense how you spend the money. See? That's where people are at today. And that's, that's, they get into situations where they, they, they get themselves because of bad, and then they want to go around pretending that they're suffering for God. No, you're suffering because you're stupid. God had nothing to do with it. He's given you clear directives and principles how to operate your life. It's that simple. 
I had a guy that couldn't keep a job years ago. If I told you his name, you'd know who he was. And he's dead now, and I don't want to defame his name, so I won't tell you who he was. But he lost every job he had. And he'd always come into me like losing a job was a badge of honor for a Christian. He'd been in it. He couldn't keep a job. And yet he was a good kid, and he loved God. And, but you know why he kept losing jobs? Because he, he kept witnessing to everybody on a job instead of working. His boss called me on the phone one day and, and, and asked me, and I, he never even knew this. But I guess what had happened was he came, you know, he's one of these big Bible-thumping guys. And, you know, and his wife's a mess, but he's a Bible-thumping guy. And he came to, around a lunch hour, and you guys at workplaces, you know how they do it. You know, they were playing cards on a lunch hour. Well, to him, playing cards is a sin. So what does he do? He walks over and throws the card table up. Okay? Then the guy's going to kill him. And then the boss gets in the middle of it, and the boss, he's, he was a good guy, lost guy. And so what do I do? I try to take a bad testimony that somebody in my church has given a lost guy and try to show him, because I know what he's thinking. So this is what Christianity is like. So I wanted to show him that, that we aren't like that. And, and he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, you know what I'd do about you? I'd fire him. I'd fire him. Really? I thought you'd take him. No, I ain't going to take a side. You're paying him to do eight hours. I'll tell you what I'll do. You fire him. I got another guy over here that needs a job who will give you eight or eight and a half hours for eight hours pay and give you what you want. We'll just replace the idiot with the good one because I don't want you thinking that that's what my church is putting out over here. You need to fire him. And he fired him, sent my guy over, got the job. He called me back three weeks later and said, that was the greatest thing. He said, and this was funny. He said, I got some more I want to fire. Can you send me some more over? And he, that guy, sure enough, that guy came in my office. Well, they did it to me again. I said, did what to you again? He said, the devil. Standing for God, being a testimony, and all you that live godly in Christ, Jesus shall suffer persecution, and I lost another job because I wouldn't compromise what I believe. I said, no, you lost a job because you're an idiot. Plain and simple. With a big eye. And you just are going to lose every job you got until you realize that, you know what? Hey, I agree. Every Christian ought to witness. Every, wherever you work, wherever you're at, wherever you do, from the hospital to wherever you're at, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you're a policeman, you're a plumber, you're whatever you ought to do. Every Christian ought to witness, and sometimes you should even use words. You think, if, you think, you think you're, what, how you live your life? I guarantee you, how you live your life is a thousand times more important and impressive than what you say. If that guy would have had the smarts and he would have had the he'd have had the understanding, he'd have gave that guy nine hours work for eight hours. And then when the boss came over and said to him, Why do you do the things that you do the way you do it? Then you have a then he's asked. There it is, first Peter chapter two. Give a reason for the, for, the, for the hope that was in you that any man that asked him. You set up the scenario by doing what's right. You're not going up to him saying you need to get saved. He's coming to you saying, hey, as my worker tell me, why do you give me and work the way you do? Why, sir? Because I'm a Christian. And as a child of God, I believe in good principles. And I believe that you were good enough to give me a job. And as a child of God, you're paying me for eight hours. I want to make sure I give you more. And not only that, I know you're in, bum, you're in business to make money. I know you're in business to make a profit. And my job is to appreciate what you've given to me so much that I'm going to make sure 
on my end, you make that profit. Woo! You'll go out of there with a raise. You'll be, you'll be his head foreman in a year. You see, but some people can't do that. Some people are just so messed up. They've been in that pattern for so many years. There's nothing that's going to change it. And they walk around thinking they're suffering because of the fact that they, you know, and they're suffering because they're, they're caught in the law of sowing and reaping. They've made some bad choices, and, they, and it goes on from there. And then you got the other side, you know, that, that they, they, suffer, they suffer legitimately. They're trying to do what's right. Sometimes it'll be in your own family. Sometimes you'll, you'll do what's right and try to take a stand, and people in your own family will clobber you. They'll clobber you because they're not doing right. They see you are doing right, and you're very existent at Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, whatever you got going on as a family. Your very existence cramps their ungodly style, and they're going to blame you for it. That's the way to get it. Don't get persecuted because you're an idiot. Get persecuted because you're doing what's right. Now, I read a book one time. This book was a good book. Wasn't worth anything, but it was a good book. It taught me a lot. It said, it said, when bad things happen to good people. And it gave you a suggestion that if you're a Christian, what do you do as a Christian when bad things happen to you? Now, I want to write another book. I probably never will. But I, I, if I ever wrote a book, I'd write a book that says this. The art of glorifying God in the worst days of your life. See, we live in a lay and day, see and age church age where they don't believe the Bible anymore. You see, people go out and buy a book when good, bad things happen to good people. The charismatic church teaches that bad things happen to you, it's because of the devil. When good things happen to you, it's because of God. When you get sick, it's because of the devil. When you lose your job, it's because of the devil. When you get a raise, it's because of God. When you come back and, you know, everything is fine, life, it's God. And they make it, it, it that isn't the way it works. All that, how does that fly in the face when the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, all things work together for good, the them that love God who are called according to his purpose. You know what that verse says? That verse stands on itself by saying, as a child of God, nothing bad happens to you. You see, our perspective is wrong. You think when you go out of here and you have a, fire, a flat tire or you have a, a car wreck or somebody breaks into your house or you do this or you lose that, you look at that as a bad thing and the actuality, the Bible says that as a Christian, unless you're out of fellowship with God and God is chastening you, but as a, and even that isn't bad. I mean, you'd rather have that and send him to hell, wouldn't you? I mean, when you, when you look at it and you, you look at your life and you get God's perspective, you realize that that's why you're to rejoice in your tribulations along with the glory of God because all things, all things, good, bad, indifferent, all things, terrible things, rotten things, worldly things, horrible things, catastrophic things, all things work together for good. Then I'm going to love God. Do they, yell, do they yell like that in Germany when they preach? They don't, do they? Sometimes? Really? Okay. I'd like to do it in German for you, but I just... Guten Abend and Good Morgen is all I know in it, but anyway. <laughs> now, I want to show you, and by the time we got left, the value of you coming to the place in your life where you learn to glory in your tribulation. Not your tribulation that you caused upon yourself, though you can learn from that if you learn from your mistakes, but most people don't. But I want to show you, I want to show you the importance 
of, and the value of you coming to the place in your life where you actually understand why it is important to get the mindset that you just don't glory in the things that are good, the glory of God, but you learn to glory in your tribulations too. Because in both cases, you're still standing in the same grace. That grace never changed. Incredible. If some of you get this today and develop this down the line, change your life. Change your life. Now look at Romans, uh, look at this chapter 3 and 4 here again, and 5. Not only, uh, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Here it comes, watch this. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Ah, and patience experience. And experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, I want you to notice four things here in this little the couple of verses. And these things are blockbusters. These, it's hard to believe that this little verse, three and four, could change your life as it stands by itself. If you learn what's in this verse, based on what I've already given you and brought you to this point, that you're not just a glory in the things of God, uh, rejoice in the glory things of God. You rejoice in the temptations and the trials and the bad things that come into your life. When you learn to do that, it is a process that God takes into your life. A process of spiritual growth as you fulfill God's will, God's plan, and God's work. And as those things mold together, you then get His vision. Now, why do we have tribulation? In a good sense, let me, let me tell you, first of all, give you a couple of things there. First of all, and this is foremost, when we have tribulation in our life, you know what it does? If you're, if you're in your Bible and you're where you need to be with God and you're a Christian, if you have tribulation, or I have tribulation, it forces us to look at the circumstances. It forces us to look at it and see it as God sees it, not as it appears. When you begin to when you begin to use the process, I call it the filtering process. A lot of times people have problems with anger. And, you know, somebody will say something to them to do. Sometimes it's women, sometimes it's men. And they'll get into a situation where, uh, you know, in a marriage where the, the husband or the wife will be, you know, they'll, 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 somebody will say something and, you know, it may be right on the edge of something and you, you, you just blow up at it. And I tell people that have anger problems, I tell them that one of the things you've got to do is you've got to understand that this is why you have to learn biblical principles. You have to use the principles as a, as a filtering process. You know, if we were out on the ocean and we were all kind of scuba diving under there and we were like in 20 feet of water, you could still see, you could still see daylight. You could see the fish around. You go down about 200 feet, you don't see nearly as well. You go down 500 feet, you don't see very well at all. You go down one mile, it's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Now, it's still daytime out there, and there's still light. Why do you not have any light one mile down? I'll tell you why. Because the water filters out the sunlight. And it takes so much water to filter out so much sunlight, and the amount of sunlight that comes to this earth, you got so much water, it filters out all the light. That water is a picture of what the principles of the Word of God does in your life. The sunlight will be the bad thing that happens, or somebody saying something to you. The water between the, where, it gets, where, the, where it's all gone and where it starts is the process of the Bible. And what happens is the principles filter out what is said. By the time it reaches you, 
You don't react to it, you respond to it. You have a, you have a way of processing your anger. And as, as Christian, we need to have a way of processing the bad things that happen to us in life. And the only way we can process those things is the principles of the Word of God. By the time it gets down to you, it's filtered out. The principles of God have overridden the problem. You now see, and it forces you, to, it forces you to look at the circumstances and the principles, the filtering process forces you to look at this and see it, not as it appears, see, but as it really is. Most things in life are not really what they appear to be. So you've got to learn in time through the Word of God, which will scrape away all of the stuff that takes, that messes it up and see what you really have. That's the process. That's what, that's what it does if you use it in your Bible. The second thing it does, it makes me examine my own self. When I have a tough tribulation thing that comes into my life, it, it, it makes me look at my, and ask me, what, ask me my motive. I mean, I don't look at it and say, you know, because if, if it's because I did something stupid, I don't have to even think about that. I know it was me. But if it isn't me and I'm just doing the best I can, the next thing I look at is I look at my, my motive of why I'm doing this. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for God? Makes you look at your motive. Why are you doing it? I'll tell you something else. It keeps us from being prideful. You know, the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest models in the Bible. And yet the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he had a thorn in the flesh. Now most people can't figure out what that thorn in the flesh is, but if you go through the Bible, it's pretty clear from what he says in other places in the Old Testament passage that not too many people can match up today, they had a problem with his eyes. And that was a thorn in his flesh. Imagine the greatest healer that ever lived had a problem with his own eyes. And by that time, the healing had gone, and he didn't have any ability, so he's suffering with myopia or whatever he had. And, and he's, he asked God three times. He asked God three times to take that away from him. And God wouldn't take it away. You know why? Because he says, I don't want you lifted up with pride. Paul, you're, you're the main man. Paul, uh, people are coming to you. They're falling down at your feet. You're healing people. You're doing all these great things. You're starting the churches. I met with you one-on-one -on, -one on Mount Sinai. Gave you alone the whole plan of God. Now you're telling everybody, you know what? If I don't keep you humble, next thing I know, you'll be getting a big old bus driving down the freeway that says, God, for G here we go for God, with big arrows pointing on it, and you'll be setting up tent meetings everywhere in the world and taking all the glory yourself. He said, you know what? So I'm going to leave you have some struggles. I'm going to leave you with some infirmities, and those infirmities are going to keep you humble. And I'm not taking them from you. You know what Paul had to learn to do? He had to learn to glorify God in those infirmities that God wouldn't take away. That's the key. It's being able to glorify God in the tough things that we go through. You know, the difference between Bible Christianity and any other religion is the fact that as Christians, we find joy in not just the good things, but by the things that are not good. That should set us apart. You know what James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 says? It says, My brethren, <coughs> count in all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Why? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience, here it comes, have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Listen. If only... If God only let the good things happen in life to us, we wouldn't be worth shooting. We wouldn't be worth nothing. We wouldn't learn a thing. Human nature is such that when everything is going good, we don't need God. And you got to learn and I got to learn when we get to the place in our lives when the, when the temptations come. Now notice this. I want you to see this. 
Just like there's two kinds of peace, there's two kinds of temptation in the Bible. Notice how in verse 3 and 2, watch this. My brethren, count on all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Now, watch how he defines temptations. Three, knowing this, that the trying of your faith. See how he defined that? Then there's two kinds of temptations in the Bible. There's a temptation that makes you go away from God and lust after the things of the world. That's temptation with evil. God doesn't tempt any man with evil. But this temptation here is a trying of your faith. What we're reading about in Romans chapter 5, that you need to learn to glorify. I need to learn to glorify in. Now, I want you to see the process, and the process is quite incredible. Now, when we learn the, the glory in our tribulations, it brings about patience. And I want to tell you, verse 3, in the ministry, that is the key ingredient you must have. And if you're ever going to be in the ministry, and I don't just mean pastoring. There's a number of you here who work with me very closely with people. I call you a personal worker. You do personal work with people who come in with different problems. And, and many of you, you're all in different stages. Some of you do it very well. Some of you do it pretty good. Some of you are just learning to grow. And my, my whole ministry and process is to put you in small groups where you can learn the process. We work together, and you get to that point where you can really be an effective personal worker. But when you look at this thing and you understand, when it comes to working with the ministry and working with people, patience is the number one thing you need to have. You know how you get patience? When you put up with something, like Paul did, that you can't change, and you can't do anything about it, and God won't take it away, and, you, and it's not because of your own stupidity. It's because of you're doing what's right. And we, and we put up with something that we can't change, we can't do anything about it, it just wears you out, and finally it wears you out to the point where you come to the end of self that you just got to give it to God and leave it over there. And then you know what you do? You give it to God and you go back and you take it back and you give it back to Him again and you take it back for a week and you give it back to Him again. And pretty through through the process, you learn patience. That's the way you get patience. You know how you become impatient or never get patience? Always looking for the quick fix. Always looking for the shortcut the easy way out, the easy solution. Because you know what, folks? In life, there is no easy, quick way. There is none. I had people that have taken probably eight or nine, ten years and developed a horrendous marriage come into me and want me to fix it in a week. There ain't no quick fixes in life. It always, you can always break something quicker than it takes to fix. You ought to know that if you've just been around in life for a while. I've had people that have ruined their kids and brought their kids in a mess and come to the point where uh, you know, kids get out of control and all kinds of problems. The parents bring me into it and say, hey, what, fix my kids. You know, can you do it by, by 4 o'clock? We've got to go to soccer practice. No quick fixes. No quick fixes. I have people come in and they say, hey, I want to learn the Bible. You know what I want to get? Hey, no easy way, quick way to learn the Bible. It's a process that takes the rest of your life. You know what the biggest difference between God and us is? In all of my time and all of my life and all of my studies, I've never found God to get in a hurry about anything. Never. We pray and throw up our, our requests. In our time, God answers them in His time. Most of our prayers that go up to God, they go into, I believe they go into categories. And they get, they get answered 
I'm kidding you now, but it may illustrate my point. I believe they go into categories. And I believe the fullest category where God's people's prayers wind up is the category that's got a big sign on it like this, and it says this. Lack of planning on your part does not necessitate an emergency on my part. File it. The older I get, the more I know about God, the more I spend time with God, the less of a hurry I get in. And that's, that's a statement for me because I was one of these guys years ago, you know, that made it happen, got it now, wanted it now. If I couldn't find out the way to get it, I'd make it happen, you know, give God the glory for it. And many times it worked out, many times it didn't. But the bottom line is this, the older I got, the more I realized God in any hurry. We're in a hurry because we haven't planned well. That's why. That's exactly why. You're in a hurry tonight with something in your life because you have failed to plan or take the right kind of emotion or motive to get the thing worked out. So now you're in a hurry. Now you're in a panic. Now you've got to have this. Now you've got to have that. You know what you've got to do? You can't wait on God now. You've got to make the house payment. You've got to balance this. You've got to do that. You've got to make the car payment. You, you, so what do you do? You step in and you take over yourself. And you never learn that way. You never learn that way. You know what you need to do? Lose the house. Get a car you can afford. Do whatever you got to do. Don't add to the process because you got some status you got to hang on to. Get yourself down where you and learn by the mistakes that you make. Who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do that. Not in the day and age we live in. You know why so many people are losing their homes right now across this country? Because they got took. They did. You know why they got took? Because somebody offered them a deal. You know what my grandmother used to say? Your grandmother probably said it. I think all of our grandmothers had a meeting at one time and all learned the same thing to tell us kids. You know what my old grandmother used to say? She used to chew tobacco. I love her to death. Wouldn't kiss her, but I love her to death. She said this. Oh, she had some sayings that I can't tell you that would be hilarious if I could tell you today. I mean, I just roar when I think about them. I can't say I'm in church. I'm a pastor. I can't say those kind of things. But anyway, come to me privately. Maybe, you, you know, we'll talk about it. But anyway, you know what she'd say? She says, you know what? If a thing looks too good to be true, it probably is. We got a whole generation today and three or four generations behind it that have come to the place that all they want is what they can get. When this country was started, Patrick Henry, one of the great guys, most of you don't even know who he is, you know what he said? One of his greatest statements was this, give me liberty or give me death. Three or four generations later, he just, it was just, give me liberty. Now, your generation, the last three generations, is just, give me. Okay? So somebody comes along and says, you want this house? Can't afford it. Oh, we can make you afford it. Don't tell you, they, they don't read the fine print. They want what they want so bad, they're willing to shine a piece of paper, and then they wind out, wow. Now, 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 you know why they'll never learn a lesson? They'll just fall for another one? Because the federal government's going to come in and bail them all out. They'll never learn a lesson from it. You know how you need to learn a lesson? Lose your house. See, that sounds terrible. Well, when in your life are you going to clear off a spot and start doing what you got to do and take the lumps you got to take and then move on from there? Or are you just continually going to make one bad choice after the other? I mean, it's like, you, you know what, it's just it, someplace in the line, you've got to stop. You've got to put the thing in perspective. And it's a thing where, you know, it, it's just the way that it is. And when you get into dealing, when, and you get into dealing with people in the ministry, you need patience. Patience. Because people are going to have problems. The ministry's people. If you're a personal worker, if you're someone who personally sits out with people and works with them, there's no quick fix to it. 
And many times they want to prod you along to make it a quick fix. There is no quick fix. You've got to have the patience because people, people don't, always, don't always jump through the hoops that you want them to the way they want to. Sometimes you have to wait it out. Sometimes it, it, it takes a while for, that, for it to sink in, and you, it's, it can be very hard. You know what? God's people get out of fellowship. And when God's people get out of fellowship, they have issues. And, you know, sometimes you just got to gotta be patient as they struggle through, help them through, do what they can do, do what you can do, and, 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 and get the thing done. But sometimes in the process, the very people who, that, that you know, were, loved you and were your friends will get sideways with you. The greatest example is in the Bible, and if you're ever going to go in the ministry, if you're ever going to go in the ministry, or you're ever going to be a personal worker for me, you need to learn these things because the tribulations that you go through bring about patience. And when you deal with people and work with people, patience is the number one thing. You have to be patient because the greatest example of is Paul. I, I wish in my life, I wish in my life, I mean, I don't care. I give up what Paul knew about the Bible. I give up his relationship with the Lord. If I could just fine-tune in my life and focus the way that he dealt with people to the point where, how he dealt with it. I mean, if anybody is the epitome of being in the ministry or working with people and seeing people who you put in your life into, gave your life to, many of them won you Christ, you work with them, you help them, you bring them along, you go through the tough times, and then because they get sideways in something, they turn against you. And you need to learn this because this is the tribulation that you have to go through to get to the point. Boy, Paul did it. Church at Corinth, great example. Church at Corinth was a church that he started on one of his missionary trips. He, if you get into chapter 1 and 2, he actually won many of the leadership to Christ there. And that was Paul's mode. He went into a place. He, he started preaching, getting people, won them to Christ. He stayed for a while. He discipled them, got them ready, got a guy ready to take over the church. And then he went to the next place. And that church began to go on its own and grow on its own. And, and Paul was like a, the, the spiritual father to many of those people in those churches. Well, in the church at Corinth, you know what happened. Church at Corinth got sideways with the Bible. Church at Corinth is so screwed up and unbelievable. And Paul writes them, writes them a letter, 1 Corinthians. And it's a hard letter. It's a hard letter. And he tells them, man, you, he nails them almost every chapter. Well, the church, the church gets repentant, or most of it does, and then so he writes them 2 Corinthians, and, and this is hilarious to me. And when he writes 2 Corinthians, he's trying to tell him how to fix their problem. And would you believe it that in the church at Corinth that Paul started were the very people he won to Christ? There's some people in that church who are saying, are you sure you're qualified to help us, Paul? In chapter 2, you know what they say? They say, before we, we accept your advice, now keep in mind, this is a church that he started, people that he won to Christ, he invested his life in, and now the church is coming back to him and saying, before we take your advice, could you send us a letter of commendation that we know you really know what you're talking about? You know what his answer was? You want a letter of commendation from me? Fine. How about you? <laughs> you wouldn't even be saved if it wasn't for me. You wouldn't even be a church if God didn't use me to start it. You want a letter of commendation of, of my qualifications? You'll be the letter of my commendation. You wouldn't even be there if God didn't put me in your world, see? He gets into the church of Galatia. Now, you know what happened to the church of Galatia? They were a young church that he started. He put his life into those people. And now the church, somebody has come in. As soon as he left, somebody has come in, and they got them on a bad doctrine, preaching another gospel. 
Paul writes them a letter and he starts to deal with them on them. And there's some people in that church that he won to Christ who obviously were one time thought Paul was everything he needed to be, who now are sideways with him and they don't like the fact that he's coming back and saying, you're wrong. You know what he says to them? Wow. One of the greatest passages in the Bible. He says to them, therefore I, I become your enemy because I tell you the truth. See the patience in that? He didn't get mad. He didn't get upset. He didn't take it personal. He understood. He understood that in the ministry, good people get sideways. They have issues in their life that get them off focus. And sometimes they make you the problem. You. You the problem. And you know what? You've got to understand that all through his life, he had men, saved men, who stabbed him in the back, who had issues with him. When he tried to do what was right, they lied about him, they slandered him, they slandered his character, and their sole purpose was to hurt him. But he, he never lost his focus, and he always glorified in his tribulation. And he never, never, never let what it was lose his focus. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says this, greatest verse in the Bible as far as ministry is concerned. Incredible. He says, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Always. And make and mention and make and make it manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. He says, we ought to always triumph in Christ. You see, when you do what God has called you to do, and when you get clobbered, and you will, you will. There's some of you right now that I put with people to work with, and you know those people have burned you. Because you come to me and you feel like there's something you did wrong. There's been people in this church that came for three or four years that this didn't have anything. This church took care of their kids at Christmas. This church took care of this, took care of that, took care of that. Nobody ever knew about it. Because that's what a church does. And you know what? This day they're out bad-mouthing the church. That's just the way it goes. It's the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. It's just the way it goes. I love to give Bibles away. And if I find somebody that really gets plugged into the Word of God and it looks like they're really doing well, I'll give them a wide-margin Bible. And I give it to them, I always tell them this. I love making an investment in people's lives. But I always cover my, my backside, too. I always say, look, hey, look, I want you to have this. You take this. Wow, this is great. Yeah, I want you to have it. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. The day you don't want to serve God anymore and you don't want to read it and you don't want to fellowship with God and you don't want to do anything with it, give it back to me. I'll just crash your name out and give it back to somebody else. Okay, okay, okay. Think anybody's ever given it back to me? No. It's all right. Okay. You always want to do what's right even when nobody else does or the other person on the other side doesn't. Yeah, that's, that's, what a, that's what a minister does. He ministers. She ministers. Through the tough time, you glory in the tribulation. You never take it personal. You never lose your focus. And yet, I want to be talked to you. Hey, I watch some of you people. You love people. I love people. You try to help people. You give of your time. You reschedule your families. You do your activities someplace else. You unconditionally give of yourself. You do over and above. And you, you try to build a relationship. You do everything by the book. And what happens? At the end, they stick it to you. It hurts. It hurts. I know it hurts you. I talk to you. Hey, it hurts me. Ah, but look at this. Go back to James 1.4. But let patience have her perfect work. That she may be perfect, 
and entire wanting nothing. Perfect for the work of God. You see, when you go through those things, it helps make you perfected for the because you learn, you learn, you learn the things you've got to deal with. You realize that, that it, it, what it produces is when you glorify God in tribulation, you get patience. And the ministry is people. And brother, nothing will teach you patience better than dealing with people in the ministry. But look at verse 3. We're not done yet. And not only so, but when we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Ah, look at verse 4. Here it comes. And patience, experience. You know the second thing you need in ministry? Experience. Experience. Patience and experience. Now that's why Bible colleges never work. Most parents send their kids off to Bible college to learn the ministry, and you'll never learn the ministry in Bible college. You know why? You don't get any experience there. You'll take a class on church building by a guy who never built a church. That's like a guy with no legs teaching Olympic running. Won't work. God's program is a local church. You see, when you get into this work, but it's in my work, and you take up the shoulder of this work that God's given us, and you look, learn through my work, and I give you part of my work, and you start to experience the bad times and the good times and the tribulations and the problems and the heartaches and everything goes along with it. From that, you have to learn patience, and as you go through the patience process, patience does its perfect work, and you get experience. That's how you get it. You don't get experience. You don't get experience. We were over there working at the thing yesterday, and I was talking to Jason Williams. And he's, Jason's the fastest mutter in the world. I mean, I love his hip movement on the, on the cart. You stand on that thing. You know, most people, and now Bubba, was, I think it was Bubba was down there. He had somebody moving his cart. You know, we know how he's done. you got to move down. And Bubba had had somebody push his cart down. Okay? <laughs> Bubba. But Jason, I'm watching. He's up there like this. He's on his cart about this high. He's mudding his stuff. And he, when he wants to move, he just goes, He's moving right down that line, man. I was impressed. I asked him, because you know what? Mudding looks easy. That's tough. To get it right done is tough. And I asked him, and, and this is my point. This is my point. I asked him, I said, how long did it take you to do that? He said, well, the first year I wore all of it. You know what he just said? He learned experience to be a good mudder by the bad things, not just the good things. He came home with mud on him all the time. He come home with dirt on him all the time. He got more, he'd be like me. When I paint, I get more paint on me than I do on the wall. But he learned through the process of it. He got experience, and he was patient. He was patient. And it's just one of those things where it's like driver's ed. You know, you can go through driver's ed all you want, get all the book learning, watch all the movies till you want, but you don't learn how to drive till you get behind the wheel, turn that car in there, and start driving it. I, I made a terrible mistake. I, when I bought my girls' cars, I, I bought them stick shifts because I thought every girl needs to know how to drive a stick shift car. I mean, they don't even make stick shifts anymore, I don't think. But, but everybody, I thought they needed to drive one. So I bought them stick shifts, their first car. Taught them how to drive. Worst mistake I ever made in my life. Worst mistake. Nothing more panicky for a girl when she's on a hill and she's got to stop and she's got to take her foot off the clutch and get it to the gas with a thing that'll roll back to the car and buy. It's all right if there's nobody there. You can roll back two, three hundred feet. You got a big old semi or a bus back there or some old lady back there with a car. With a gun, you're going to hit her bumper? Oh, yeah. You know what my girls did? They got to the place where they couldn't do it. I ain't kidding you. They just parked the car in the middle of the street and left it there and ran home. <laughs> but they, I wanted them to have the experience. See? I figure every woman had to be able to do two things. She had to be able to shoot, and she had to be able to drive a stick ship. <laughs> Experience. 
You know an auto mechanic? Now he gets, he, you know how he becomes a good mechanic? He, he's dropped his tools down the, down the engine block. He's burned his hand on a hot engine block. He's banged his head on the oil pan. He forgot to put oil in the car crankcase after he drained it out and the guy driving down the road and the red light's coming on. In other words, he's learned by experience by what not to do as well as what to do. Experience means you've learned from your mistakes and what you've done well because they're both important and you learn to rejoice. Know what the problem is today? People don't want to learn from their mistakes. People don't like to be told when they make one. You know what my generation has over you? And I, and I say you. I'm not really talking about you because you guys are, and you know how you are with me. You guys are, you're, you, I don't look at you, but I, you know in preaching you just use the word you. and you, Don't take it personal. But you know the difference between my generation and your generation? My generation was appreciative of what somebody did for him. John, our generation. My father and is Mel Sabaka. You know why I am, in my mind, and maybe I'm, in your mind I'm nothing, but in my mind where I'm at with God, in my ability to deal with people, my ability to see things. You know why? You know why I believe if I'm successful at all in the ministry, and I'm not saying I am, but if I am successful at all in the ministry, there's one thing that I attribute my success to. And that was my generation had enough wherewithal to say to the man that was the Apostle Paul of my life, Mel, you got a ministry. You know what you're doing. I want you to teach me everything that you know. And Mel, I'm going to give you this license. If you see me doing something that's out of whack and out of line, that is going to get me messed up down the line someplace, would you please come to me and tell me, I guarantee you, I will not get mad, upset. I will take it in the spirit you're giving it because I'm asking you to do that. And if I have one gleaming thing that helped me more than anything in life was I gave that man in my life that option to do that. You know what? You can't do that today. You can't do that today. The gen now, maybe some of you can, but your generation, in, in they don't want to hear what's wrong. They don't want to be told anything. Why would you let me into your life to tell you something when you haven't listened to your parents for the last 15 years? I mean, it, you know, it just, it, 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 that's the difference between the generations. The, you know what, the generation, my generation was appreciative. When a, when a man of the Word of God, man, did something in my life, I appreciated it. And I know talking to you from where you've come from, I know it's true in your life and you older people in here. I know it's true. I see it in you because we come out of that generation when we were thankful for what. But the generation today isn't like, the genera my generation is, I want to thank you for what you did for me yesterday and thank you uh, for, from the bottom of my heart for what you did. The generation today simply says, forget what you did yesterday. What are you going to do for me today? It's unappreciated. Not, again, not you guys. Because you guys are, but I'm saying, that's the difference. And if you're going to be a personal worker, if you're going to minister to people, you've got to have patience because people are going to get sideways who were once your friend, part of your family. It's going to come to the point where it's going to happen. But the reason why you glory in those tribulations is because it works patience, and from patience you get experience. That's the difference. Now, you personal workers that work with me and people, you know what all this means, what I've just told you? Have you calculated into your brain yet? And sometimes, I want you to know this, sometimes I put you with people, I mean, you might as well know the mindset behind it. Sometimes I put you with people who I don't think those people are going to make it. Now, 
I'm not clairvoyant and I don't have a crystal ball, but the bottom line is this. You see, in the world that we live in today with people who live their lives the way they do when they come in with problems, you know, most people who just spend 15, 20 years out in the world, you don't have much of a chance to get back where it needs to be. You're just, I mean, I'm not saying you can't, but it's going to be harder for you and most people don't have the wherewithal to do it today. There's no discipline in their life. There's no respect in their lives. There's no self-worth in their life. They've been beat up by their parents, by their family, and they're left just along the side of the road. And it's up to us to bring them in and try to bandage them back up. That's tough. And I've given you people before that I knew probably were not going to make it. But I do that for two reasons. One, I want to always look back and even though I thought they might not make it, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that we give them the best chance we can, even though my professional opinion is it ain't probably going to work. But that's okay. Give them every chance they can have. One or two or three or four chances, that's what it takes. I don't care. They may, they may be the one that's going to break the cycle, and I'm all for that. But on the other side of it, I want you to learn from it. If you just had people that were really easy to work with, and people that didn't give you problems, and people that didn't drive you nuts, you wouldn't learn anything. You wouldn't learn anything. And so sometimes I purposely put people in your world that will help develop you. Now, you know what this means for you people who want to work with people and get to that point where you minister to people? You know what it means? It means you're in a building process, and, and just listen to me now. It means you're in a building process, and it simply means this. You probably will really, really, really not be effective in dealing with people and ministering to people till you get your heart broke about 15, 20 times. That's what it means. You really won't be good at what you do till you invest everything you got and somebody just put it to you. That's what it means. But that's the process. May I give to you today in these final moments. Don't close your Bible yet. It isn't that final. <clears throat> May I give to you today the most private verse in my life in ministry. My own family doesn't know what this, this is my hiding place. I have, if you go to my, this place in my Bible, it is war, war out than any other place in my Bible because this in the ministry is where I have learned to live, to deal with the ministry, to always try, don't say I do, always to try the glory and the tribulations and the heartache of dealing with people. It's in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. One of the most incredible, 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 incredible verses in the Bible. And it's my hiding place in the ministry. And yet it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Now in Zechariah chapter 13, the context here is the millennial reign of Christ. Christ is now back on the throne and he's in the millennium. And when you come down through here in the first four or five verses, it's talking about Christ being back in the land and all that stuff. And uh, Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. If you're trying to find it, that's fine. You know what? I still have trouble finding some of the minor prophets from time to time. It's okay. Just go to, go to Matthew and then work back two books and there it'll be. Look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. Now somebody's asking this to Jesus. Incredible verse. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? And he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. 
The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. The Bible says the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And somebody's saying in the millennium, where did you get the wounds in your hand? And you know what his answer is? These wounds, these were the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And sometimes people that are your friend are going to give you wounds, ladies and gentlemen. And that's just the way that it is. You know what my answer to that is? When somebody says, well, I would, hey, if he got wounded in the house of his friends, why are we any better than him? Now, when you do his work and you do his ministry, you're going to get wounded in the house of your friends. People will get out of fellowship and they'll stop growing. They'll get into some problem wounds, ladies and gentlemen. And that's just the way that it is. You know what my answer to that is? When somebody says, well, I would, hey, if he got wounded in the house of his friends, why are we any better than him? And when you do his work and you do his ministry, you're going to get wounded in the house of your friends. People will get out of fellowship and they'll stop growing. They'll get into some problems in their life and you will be the cause. Patience and experience is the key. I don't know how many of you know Roy and Donna Hardman. I love Roy and Donna. My wife just discipled Donna, and, and oh, I, I, love, I love spending time with Roy. Roy is a, is, is a neat guy. Roy always leaves me better than he finds me. He always is, he's, a, he's one of the greatest encouragements to me as a pastor uh, that I've ever had in my life, and I love Roy. And a while back, Roy and I were talking, and he, he told me something, that, he told me a story. And Rob, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, I'm telling this story or not, but uh, it's a great story. Because, you know, in the ministry, and in the tribulations and working with people, you got to keep it in balance. you got to keep it in perspective. Hey, let me just tell you, there are some people out there who will really want to hurt you, who will want to hurt this church, who will save some of the most ungodliest stuff and try to slander you and me and this church and do everything they can do. There are people like that. But that's in one category. There's nothing you can do about that. So you glory in that. But then you have people that are in your own ministry, good people, who have problems too, and they don't always live up, and they have issues that come in and problems that come in, and, and they, it may get them off focus for a little bit. Hey, you can't treat, listen to me, you can't treat both groups the same way. The people out there that hate this church, hate me and hate you, and people have come through here and badmouthed you every time and came to me and said, well, so-and-so did this, did this, did that to me, and they didn't do this right, and I just simply say, you know what? They have worked with me with 20-some people, and they've done everybody right. Now, you're the exception to the rule? Hey, you know what? Here's the door. Hit the road. If i got to take you or them, I'm taking them. See you later. They're always going to be there. But enduring with people, sometimes good people struggle with things. And you've you got to be there for them. You've got to give them that time, the patience and the experience. I'll tell you the story. I love Roy. Roy was telling me a story. He said, you know what? Me and my dad, years ago, they had this dog. And his dog was a great dog. Where's Rob at? Rob's here. Rob, you know that? You heard this story before? No, you don't know yet? Okay. And he said, this dog, I hope I tell it exactly right, but so you'll pick it up. But anyway, he said, me and my dad, we, I had this dog. And my dad and I were out someplace, and this dog was a great dog, and I love this dog. And this dog was running out in the field one day, and it jumped over a fence, and it got his leg caught in the fence. You know, it, 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 barbed wire fences are like this, and the dog jumped over, and his one leg down one here, and then the top leg, and so when he went over, the fence just went around his leg. 
And a dog's laying on the ground, you know, and he's yelping and struggling everything, you know. And he said, my dad and I went over to get the deal. And I said, I went over to, to pick the fence out of the thing, and the dog reared up and really bit me. I got back, and I'm thinking to myself, what you bite me for? I'm just trying to help you. And he, he got over there, and he tried a dog tried to bite him again. And he tried to get down there, and a the dog kept snapping at him, you know. And so finally, they just got something and cut the wire, and the dog, and five minutes later, you know, they're walking back, and that dog is up next to him, you know, rubbing his head, and, and you know, and he's petting him, and they're walking back. And he, he boy said, I was thinking, you know, now, now you want to be my friend. And my dad said this. He said, you know what? He said, you do know that dog never stopped loving you. You do know that that dog was always your friend. You do understand that that dog bit you just because he was caught in the fence. Sometimes we get caught in the fence, don't we? I don't know how many times since he told me that story. I've dealt with somebody or saw somebody struggling with something and, and, and instead of taking it personal, that thing has come home to me and I said to myself, that's okay, you know what, they're just caught in the fence. Just caught in the fence. We all get caught in the fence at times. And in the ministry, you're going to deal with a lot of good people who just get caught in the fence. And it's okay. Because we all get caught in the fence. We all get caught in the fence. And when you start to do ministry, ministry comes to the point where it gets you, it gets you, it gets you patience. Patience gives you experience. And you know what my feeling on it is? Romans 15.1 says, and this is where you need to get to. Romans 15.1 says this. Ye that are strong ought to bear the affirmings of the weak. Here's how I feel about it. If right now what you need is somebody to blame your problem on so you can get out from under the conviction you're on so God can then give you more conviction, because that's what will happen. If you need to blame that on me or somebody else here that you can, to you deal with it, that's okay. You know what? That's okay. That's okay. Because that's what strong Christians ought to do. Because all the people are sometimes are just caught in the fence. Just caught in the fence. They're good people. Nothing wrong with them. But when you deal with people, people have problems and people have issues and not, hey, do I respond to every problem exactly right the way that I should? Certainly I do. do you, no, <laughs> of course I don't. Of course I don't. Talk to my wife. Of course I don't. We all get caught in the fence. And if we all, as God's people, want to work with people, you know how you work with people? You start with working with each other. Allowing people to have the days they have and the struggles they have. Not running around and saying, well, you know, so-and-so is this, this, or did that, or she, he did this, or she did that. It's beside the point. Everybody has their day in the fence. You've got to be able to discern between what is here and what is over here. That's what experience gives you. That's what patience gives you. And then he says this, and I'm finished, verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Getting God's will, getting God's work, getting God's plan will give us God's focus, God's vision, and God's perspective. My hope, He's coming. And I have a job to do for Him till He gets here. My hope, this life is only temporary. Even the bad things that go on are only temporary. My hope, don't major, Bob, on the minors. Focus on the real issues. My hope, I'm not ashamed of God for what I do. What is my hope? I do it because I love Him. 
And because we love him, we ought to love each other. And we understand that this is our ministry together. Nothing should separate this. Because we're standing in something. We're standing in the grace of God. You know what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and uh, 39? He says, who shall separate us? Not me, us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ to him that loved us. See that thing? Because patience has a perfect work. And when you begin to put those things in your life, the process begins. And you realize that the people is ministry and you have to learn to glory in the tribulations. Glory in the concept to get patience. For I am persuaded in neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, there it is. There's what we have. That's what we have. We're standing in something. I heard as I was out there in the hall singing the song this morning, and it, 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 it's one of my favorite. And you sang it this morning. But I, I, I listened as you sang it, and I thought to myself, I wonder if they even understand what they're singing. You said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Whatever it is. That second verse. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. You see the theology in that? Anchor holds within the veil. It was the veil that got ripped between the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle that put you and me in Christ Jesus and got us His righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Standing, we stand on something. And when we stand on something, the world doesn't matter. It gives us the ability not only to glorify in the fact that we're standing on Christ the solid rock in His glory, but we glorify and rejoice in the trials and the tribulations of this life, knowing that we got a job to do, knowing that from the tribulations, when we glorify Him in our tribulations, comes patience. And patience works its perfect work, and we get experience. And experience bringeth hope. And hope is what we're standing on. Not I hope I'm saved, but I'm, I feed it anchored on the hope of the whole world, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it takes. So you see, when Romans chapter 5 begins to open it up, it sets the pace for where we're going. It sets the pace for you and I to walk down through life realizing that there is a price to pay. Helping each other. Ye that are strong ought to bear in the firmness of the weak. Knowing that in the ministry and as you personally work with people, you're going to have the issues of dealing with people's personalities, people's old sin nature, and the way they struggle. Just remember, Jesus said, I was wounded in the house of my friends. You're no better than he is. I'm no better than he is. They rejected him, they'll reject you. They reject you, they'll reject me. 
bottom line is this. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in everything. Because my feet is anchored on those principles. And we all have our day where we get caught in the fence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.